I'm gonna do this a little differently this morning. You may not notice, but I do because I, it's just how I roll. Everyone wants Jesus on their side. Now, that's different than what he said in John 17 as he prayed and John 16 as he warned the disciples that the whole world would be hostile towards you because you belong to me. But there's a difference between the hostility of people when they realize who Jesus really is and what he's really asking. And the fact that everyone wants Jesus on their side. I remember back in the 80s, Jesus was a name thrown out in the New Age movement. Yeah, we could be like Jesus. They wanted to use the name Jesus. Mormons use it, JWs use it. Progressive Christianity today. Everyone wants Jesus on their side to support and bear up what they're doing. But the thing is, Jesus calls us to his side. And there's a vast difference between the two. As we continue on in John's gospel this morning, don't forget what we've recently learned. All that he has taught, all that he has spoken, we studied through talking about the Holy Spirit, talking about prayer, and then the final teaching of Jesus here at the end of his ministry, still on the night of betrayal, and that betrayal gets underway in John 18. But try to keep in mind, if you can, draw off of what Jesus has been saying, what he has been calling his disciples to, which is to be on his side, not to name him for their purposes. So let's get right into it. John chapter 18, verse one, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Cadron, and that's an interesting phrase, the ravine of the Cadron. If you've been in Israel, if you've stood on the Temple Mount and looked toward the Mount of Olives, you know in between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives is the Cadron Valley. The ravine of the Cadron, it drops more than 200 feet below the Temple Mount before rising back up again onto the Mount of Olives. During Jesus' day, it was probably another 30, maybe 40 or 50 feet deeper than it is today. Today, there's all the buildup of the, of the you know, dirt and the years, and then it's kind of piled back up another you know, 30, 40 feet. So it's quite a drop, the ravine of the Cadron, but, but it's very specific in, in its word. Ravine in Greek is chemarhos, and it literally means winter flow. This is the winter flow of the Cadron, and the reason it's called that is because it describes a brook swelling to a torrent because of the late rains in the year in Israel. In summertime, that Cadron Valley, and even back in the first century, the Cadron Valley was a dry, hard pan creek bed you could just walk right across, like a lot of the typical wadis in the Middle East. But in the wintertime, you could not ford the torrent that would rush through there. In fact, many don't realize this, but if you stand on the, on the Mount of Olives and look across to the Temple Mount, there was a bridge that ran from the Eastern Gate straight across level to the Mount of Olives. And that was of use to get across to the Mount of Olives during those winter months, especially when you couldn't just walk across the valley. So the ravine, the winter flow of the Cadron. Cadron is also a very instructive word because Cadron translates or, or means dark, murky, or opaque. The ravine was called a dark, murky, opaque ravine. And the reason, well, it was twofold. One, because as the winter torrents rushed through the valley, it stirred up all the muck and debris that would be there through the years. Oftentimes, that was used for a waste place along with the Hinnom Valley, depending on where you lived in Jerusalem, you could dump stuff out there or in the Hinnom. But all of that would mix up with the 
muck and the dust and, and, and it would become this real thick, opaque river. But there's a greater reason it was called the Cadrone. And that is that the valley was dark and opaque with blood. It's a very bloody valley. Josephus tells us in the first century that as many as 256,000 lambs were sacrificed at Passover on one day. That is enough blood to fill top to bottom an Olympic-sized swimming pool. And it would flow as they sacrificed these lambs, that blood would flow through channels from the Temple Mount down into the valley and it would mix in the Cadron. So now you've got this thick, murky, crimson red rushing down through that valley. As Jesus and the 11 crossed this ravine, probably over that bridge, we would assume perhaps over that bridge, maybe not if the valley was dry, but they crossed the ravine and I wonder if his thoughts turned to his own blood. It was about to flow for us through a different valley, through the valley of the shadow of death, the blood of Jesus. He became for us, as Paul called him, Christ our sacrifice, the, the final Christ our Passover, the final Passover sacrifice. So the brook Kidron, as written here, is the winter flow of the dark, murky, and opaque. It's mentioned 11 times, this brook is, in the entire Bible. So that, that's not a lot compared to other things, but it is mentioned 11 times, but only one time in the entire New Testament, and that's right here. One time. And this is the very last time, then, that the brook Cadrone is mentioned in the Bible at all. Aside from its location, why do you think John is naming it right now? Why suddenly does he mention the brook Cadron? Well, Rick, it's obvious because that's what they crossed. Okay, I'll give you that one. But if you wanna dive a little deeper into the thinking, the first time the brook Cadron is named, this is the last, the first time another man passed over it, went across it in another scene of great sorrow. So the very first time the Cadron Valley, the, the Brook Cadron is mentioned, was a thousand years earlier as King David was fleeing Jerusalem, the seat of his God-given rule and authority because it was being overthrown by his son Absalom. David went across and 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23 tells us, while all the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over, the king also passed over the Brook Cadron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. So the first mention a thousand years before, King David crosses the Cadron as his kingdom is being usurped. How interesting. So now Jesus goes the same route. But listen, just as King David would return, cross back into his kingdom, over the Cadron, he reclaimed his throne, so King Jesus is gonna do the same thing. He's gonna come back to Jerusalem from the east, he'll cross the Cadron and claim his rightful throne. It's an amazing picture, but it's absolutely legit. Matthew 24, 27, Jesus said, just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. That is flashing from the east. Ezekiel 43, verse four says, the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. That's Ezekiel's prophecy of the coming of Jesus. Ezekiel 43, verse seven, 
God said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. Jeremiah 31, 39, God promised this. As far as the brook Kedron, to the corner of the house gate toward the east, all the fields shall be holy to the Lord. It will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever, and that is a foundational promise. And I don't need to tell you, but I will. All the promises of God in the Bible are rock solid. You can build on those. You can build on this truth because the foundation is absolutely sure. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kedron where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. You know the garden Gethsemane, Gatshmone, in the Hebrew, which means the olive press. Olive trees all over that side of the Mount of Olives, hence the name. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, they called it the, the Garden of the Olive Press, where Jesus would be pressed, sweating blood as he faced the final acceptance of God's righteous wrath. The punishment of your sin and mine there in Gethsemane. And this is the way he's going. By the way, interestingly, John doesn't deal with that painful pressing. The, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they talk about Jesus weeping in the garden. Luke says Jesus sweating great drops of blood as he prayed in great distress, facing the wrath of God before him. He didn't take the wrath in the garden. He would take the wrath on the cross. But more painful, more difficult for Jesus was the moment of acceptance, the moment of absolute no going back, yes, not my will, but yours be done, Father. And so it was a, an intense time. John doesn't deal with it. Why not? Did he think it didn't happen? Well, of course he knew it happened. He was there, but it's already been talked about. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they cover this. John wants us to see something else. John wants us to understand something that must be understood today, absolutely has to be understood, or our faith is of not. Verse two. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Gethsemane was a refuge for Jesus and his men. It was off the beaten path of Jerusalem's busy streets, a, a place they could go to relax and talk and pray and share. It's a retreat for Jesus and his friends and now his betrayer. Psalm 41, verse nine, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Matthew Henry writes, and I find this interesting, he says, it is hard to say whether more mischief is done to Christ's kingdom by the power and policy of its open enemies or by the treachery and self-seeking of its pretended friends. Nay, Matthew Henry says, without pretended friends, its open enemies could not gain their point as they do. Among the greatest threats to the church today is being torn down from within. It's not the pressure from outside. In fact, what Satan learned in the first 300 years of the church is the more you persecute the church, the more you martyr the believers, the more you go after them and threaten them and, and, and try to attack them, the more the church grows. 
This has been the reality for 2,000 years. As Tertullian once said, the blood of martyrs is seed. So come at us from the outside, attack us from out there, and we will only grow stronger, and we will only dig in on the foundation and the truth of God's word and his spirit and who Jesus is. It's when we start to crumble from within that we have a problem. That's always when the church goes through the throes of painful change and difficulty when it comes from within. Paul even warned about this, Acts chapter 20, verse 29, he says, after my departure, I know savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And perverse things are still being spoken in the name of Christianity. In the church general today, people who would call themselves Christians today who are undermining the very fabric and truth of all that we believe. And you need to be aware it is going on right now in the church today as much as it ever was. This is one of those teachings as we get into it that is not about making people paranoid, but certainly prepared and aware and understanding that we have but one truth on which we stand. One Jesus on whom we build, our faith is, is, is built up. And the outside can attack and we will remain strong. But when we start to struggle within and when the lies and the deceit and the wolves in sheep's clothing that look like sheep, act like sheep and speak like sheep, but they're drawing away from the truth, when that happens, that's where there is the real danger. We need building up. We need to build up. We need edification. Do you realize that that word edification comes from edifice? To edify is to build. To have an edifice is something strong and certain and secure. Fortifications, ramparts, defenses, we need that against the harsh opposition from outside. And if we build on the foundation of the truth, then we are solid inside the church and we can withstand anything by the power of God, by his very present spirit with us. But we start to find deceit and lies and wolves within. That's that's gonna undermine the fabric of our built-up faith. Verse three, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. If you skip down and look at verse 12, it also says the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And we'll come back to that verse, but I wanted you to see that word commander. There's a commander, there's a cohort, and there are the officers. Check out who's on hand for the arrest of Jesus. We didn't know this from the other gospels. We know that they came with, with a, a, you know, that there were Romans, a guard that came, but, but John describes it for us in a way that is stunning. And I've mentioned this recently, but first we have the officers of the chief priests, and then we have a Roman commander, Commander in the Greek is Hiliaros, and he's not funny. Hiliaros literally means Hiliaros, hilarious, are you with me? Okay, I think it's hilarious, but Hiliaros means captain of a thousand. There is a captain of a thousand there. What's he doing there? And with him there is a cohort, which is Spiron, Spiron in the Greek means a battalion of 600 men. 
Picture this in the garden. It's not a handful of soldiers. This is a battalion of 600 with their commander who normally commands 1,000, but figures we'll just take 600 this time with us. It was a large, trained, weaponized military outfit that went into the garden. <laughs> what threat could one Galilean rabbi possibly pose? Along with his crack squad of fishermen, tax collectors, and one zealot. But they have to bring 600 against 12. 11 disciples and their rabbi. 600 with commander and the chief priest, and of course, and of course the betrayer is there as well. It almost doesn't make sense, but then you stop to think, okay, wait a minute, but politically, notice. John says they came with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Verse three. So they came fully equipped. No doubt as they came and the word was spreading through Judas and with the chief priests and the officers and the Sanhedrin, there was a lot of fear there. No doubt as they went to the Romans and got this battalion to come with them that they're assuming they're gonna have to chase this rebel down. This is the midst of Passover. They had had uprisings there before. The Romans didn't like uprisings. And those contentious Jews, man, they brought it all the time. So here's another one of those leaders. And, and who knows, if they get out there and his men are out there, who knows how many people actually are with him? Or maybe they could dispatch one of the disciples to call for a, for a rebellion to rise up, an uprising from the city. So we better be prepared. I guess it does make some sense. They're, they're bringing lanterns. Maybe they're gonna have to comb the woody hills of the olive trees just to find him. If he takes off, if he hides... But there's a deeper reason for this kind of weaponized battalion showing up in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's very simply this. It's not a physical reason or a political reason. It is a spiritual reason that the devil was not about to blow his chance to nab Jesus. This is it. This is the chance to get the Son of God up on a cross, and we're not gonna take any chances. Verse four, so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth. What? He went forth. He could easily have slipped away. He could have just gone straight up over the hill and made for Bethany, and then bolted for the hills of Judea, and then on up to the Galilee. He'd done it before, right? In the city of Jerusalem, when they start to look for him and he just slips away, he's very good at it. He knew how to time his timing just right, but in this case, it's an amazing sentence that Jesus, knowing what was coming, which you could translate to the entire next 12 to 15 hours of his life and death, he knew. He knew, and yet we're told he went forth. And he said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said to them, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. It's not I am he. There's no he in verse five or verse six. It is in Greek, ego eimi. I am. It is the same thing that Jesus said when he said back in John chapter eight, verse 58, before Abraham was born, I am. 
It's the same time, same way he used the I am statements. We've seen seven I am statements throughout the Gospel of John. And here he stands up, comes to them, whom do you seek? They say, Jesus the Nazarene, and he just says, I am. And the statement is so huge, it is so powerful, it knocks them to the ground. And there's no other way to translate this. It's exactly what John says. They drew back and fell to the ground. Who did? The chief priests, the commanders, and a cohort, a battalion of 600 men. At the name of Jesus, at the statement of I am, they fall back. And once again, here's Jesus identifying as God, as he has throughout the gospel. And as John has made so absolutely clear, And there was such weight to that identification that while it physically blew back opposition, it spiritually did so as well. My friends, I think the demons were shuddering at the the stating, at the speaking of I am. Four things to jot down in this section. Number one, there's authority in the name. There is authority in the name. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Yahweh, you Bible students know I am, that the Hebrew equivalent is Yahweh. What we call the tetragrammaton, the Y-H-W-H, that's I am. All the way back in Exodus when Moses asked, who shall I say ascending me? And God says, I am. That's the coining of the name Yahweh. So when Jesus says, I am, in Greek, ego eimi, in Hebrew, he's saying Yahweh. And it is a powerful, powerful name. There is authority in the name Ephesians 1.21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You know who Paul's talking about there? He's speaking of the name of Jesus, which now bears the authority and the weight of Yahweh. The identification with God, the authority in the name, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth And every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when we say Jesus Christ is Lord, we're not saying we kind of like him. We're not saying, yeah, he's a cool dude. We're not saying, boy, we'd love to have Jesus on our team. We're saying he is Lord. He is master. He is authority. He is in charge over all others. There's no one higher. There's none greater. There's no more powerful, perfect authority. And I'm not overstating this, but listen, in the garden on that night, one person was in charge and that was Jesus. The commander was not in charge. Judas was not in charge. The officers of the chief chief priests were not in charge. Jesus was in full control of the situation. Therefore, verse seven, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered and he said, I told you that I am. (laughs) So if you seek me, let these go their way. Why did he say that? Verse nine, John says, to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. That's John 17, verse 12. That's what Jesus just prayed, literally moments before prior to his agonizing prayer, when he prayed that marvelous prayer we went over the last couple of Wednesday nights, he said, of those of you who've given me, of the 12, I lost not one but the son of perdition, Judas. Even Judas is standing there right now. And so Jesus says, if you seek me, let these go their way. Why were none of the apostles arrested that night? 
That doesn't make any sense at all. Well, because they ran faster than 600 Romans. Why were they not arrested as co-conspirators, as insurrectionists that night? Shut this thing down, man. We have Jesus and we have his closest followers. We have his lead guys. Get them all. Why not? Because Jesus willed it so. Because Jesus said, let them go. He commanded it. By the way, it's in the imperative form in the Greek. When he says, let them go. And nobody disputed him. Why? Because Jesus was in control. Because Jesus held the authority of the moment. He didn't just ask for their relief. Oh, please let them go and I'll go with you quietly. He says, let them go. In the imperative, he commanded it and so they went. There is authority in the name even when we flail. In verse 10, Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus Peter. Jesus just gave you a way out. He gave you protection. He gave you release, and you're swinging a sword. Now, Luke 22 tells the same story, and, and I, I gotta be careful here, because it's really not fair. I think Peter has taken a beating for 2,000 years. All right, I remind you, he's the one disciple in 2,000 years who did walk on water if it was only a few steps. And he ultimately gave his life for the cause, martyred, crucified like Jesus, and tradition tells us upside down because he didn't want to be crucified in the same way as his Lord. So Peter's all right. Peter's solid. Peter preached the first sermon of the church and 3,000 people got baptized that day. So let's not demean Peter. Let's just recognize an affinity with Peter because I think I might be flailing too. Either like John Mark, <laughs> I'd take off running naked. Don't picture that. <laughs> or like Peter, grab a sword. No, no, no. And just out of control, Luke tells the story, but John adds two little details, two details that we would not have known if John hadn't written this gospel. The first one was the slave's name. He tells us his name was Malchus. Malchus, which is an interesting name because in the Greek it means king or kingdom. King, the slave of the, of the high priest or, the, or the, the slave of the officer here, his name was Malchus. Yeah, the high priest slave. So John knew his name. So John writes his name. Why did John know his name? Well, John knew the high priest's family. You find that out just a little bit further down. But there are many who think, and I would agree with this, that the reason he literally names, calls out the name of Malchus here in his gospel is because Malchus was a well-known believer in the early church. And we don't know, we can't prove it. Bible doesn't tell us that, but tradition does, history does, that Malchus became a Christian, became a follower. And it totally makes sense that he would. Revelation chapter two, verse nine says, he who has an ear, let him hear. <laughs> and at least Malchus still had one, right? Actually, actually, Jesus made sure that he had both, Luke twenty two fifty one, 51, and he touched his ear and healed him. And so it may well be that Jesus mentions him by name because he heard the word and believed, and faith comes by hearing, and hearing 
by the word of Christ. Can you imagine every time someone said, hear the word, Malchus would just say, amen. <laughs> amen. Because that night, Jesus just healed him. It's awesome. The other thing that John tells us, not only the, the name, the slave's name, but he tells us the swordsman's name, which is Peter. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell us Peter's the one who swung the sword. John does. Before I tell you why, listen, there's authority in healing. That's your second point. There's authority in the name, there's authority in healing, and yet right there, about to be arrested, Jesus touches Malchus's ear and heals him. Now, I, I, you know, you can kind of come up with what did that look like? Did he pick up the ear off the ground and stick it back on? Or did he just touch the side of his head and there was fresh flesh and a new ear? I, I don't know, but Jesus instantly pulled off a stunning healing. No sutures, you know, no gauze, no keep this covered and don't take a shower for seven days. This was just done. In the garden, as he's about to be arrested, there is authority in healing. There's authority, authority in the name I am, authority in the fact that he was able to, to save the apostles and call for their, their release. Authority now in the very healing of Malchus. Please hear this. Every supernatural healing in the history of the church and before Every supernatural healing that takes place in the world today now in the name of Jesus is not about the healing, it's about the healer. It's about the authority of Jesus Christ. Not the excitement of what you've just accomplished by his spirit. It's about Jesus. He gets the credit. It is his power, his grace, and his authority that brings any healing at all. But Malchus <laughs> got no love from Peter. And Peter is named here, he's the swordsman. And if you wonder, how did this come about? First of all, that he's packing a sword. I mean, books in a travel bag, I, I might understand, but what is a rabbi's disciple doing with a sword? And you'd have to draw back to Luke for that. So if you'd like to go back there, Luke chapter 22. Turn that back there just for a moment, Luke 22. Down in verse 35, Luke 22, 35, Jesus is speaking with his disciples. They've just had the big argument over who's the greatest, so they're really cluing in. And Jesus finally says to them in verse 35, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. You remember that was the, the first commission where he sent them out two by two, the disciples said, don't take anything, you're, you're, you're gonna be taken care of. And he was building faith and he was teaching them at that time, you go in the name of the Lord and I will cover you. You're, you're taken care of. Don't worry about packing anything. This time Jesus says, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that, that, that this which is written must be fulfilled in me and he was numbered with transgressors for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Hang on a second, wait a minute. It is enough? He's not saying, good, that's great. We have enough now to take on a battalion. 
He's saying, that's enough. He's saying, enough of this talk. Because Jesus was talking about preparedness for spiritual warfare. He was not talking about picking up their swords and dying cruel deaths because they're fighting back on the battlefield. He's using the sword as an example of tough days ahead, which is why he immediately tells Peter back in the garden, when Peter in his one-man gladiatorial garden offensive goes off, Jesus says, stand down. Stand down, Matthew 26, verse 52. He says, put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Which helps us understand that when he says take along a sword in Luke 22, he's not talking about warfare. He's not talking about fighting. He's talking about spiritual warfare. Prepared to fight with the only sword, honestly, brothers and sisters, that we have, and it's in most of your hands. Put back your sword, and then Jesus said, Matthew 26, 53, do you not think that I can appeal to my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. That would be 72,000 angels. So put that into perspective. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, if Jesus had wanted to, he could have called down 72,000 angels to deal with 600 Romans. Talk about a bloodbath. Talk about the cadrone running red and murky and dark. Why didn't Jesus do it? Because better blood had to be spilled. Pure and perfect and sacrificial blood of a quality and a virtue that could save the world. It's not your blood that'll save anybody. It's not my blood, but the blood of Jesus. And in this moment, it's so remarkable how cool and calm and resolute Jesus is. Verse 11 so Jesus said to, to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Number three, there's authority in control. There's authority in control, and Jesus had it perfectly. It is only by his controlled authority that this did not explode into a bloody conflict right then and there. That he was able to step up and stop Peter and heal the high priest's servant because otherwise, I mean, can you imagine the moment that Peter swung the sword, what do you think you would have heard? I think we would have heard swords and shields rattling from the battalion as they stood up. Here comes the fight. Here we go, men. Take them all out. And Jesus so calmly, so resolutely heals the high priest and says, put the sword away. Shall I not take this cup? He's so clear. He's so cool. And he instantly stopped the madness. Let me ask you again, who's in charge here? Who's running this show? The difference, by the way, between Peter's frenzy and Jesus' calm is often the, distance, the difference between Jesus' calm and our frenzy, our anxiety, our rushing, whether it's to judgment or to action or to doing something. I gotta fix this situation. And we swing wildly and Jesus says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Put the sword into the sheath. Put the sword into the sheath. What was the difference between Peter and Jesus? Well, just moments before, Peter napped while Jesus prayed. Matthew 26, 41. Also Mark 14, 38. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. 
The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, Jesus said. Luke twenty two forty six. he says to the disciples, why are you still sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What kind of temptation? I don't know, maybe drawing a sword and chopping off someone's ear? In a panic? In a rush? Jesus was so cool because Jesus came right out of prayer. Listen, if we are not used to making prayerful, spirit-led decisions, we're gonna be like Peter. We're gonna swing wildly, we're gonna flail our swords, and we're gonna hurt people. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12 says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, which by the way, I gotta say this, I love that. The word of God divides out between the soul man who tries to reason and figure everything out and the spirit man who listens to Jesus. The word divides that. The word teaches me to listen in spirit rather than act in soul. It's piercing as far as both joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Man, you can, you can pray the word or you can grab it and swing. And much damage in 2,000 years has been done by Christians grabbing this sword and swinging wildly instead of praying with this sword and seeking Jesus. And no one's gonna hear you if you're out there lopping off ears. If we're using the word just to defend ourselves and prove our rightness and their wrongness, no one's listening. In fact, they're gonna be deaf to the message. So we pray the word. We seek the will of God. And when we speak the word, we speak it in love. And we present it as a healing instrument, a, a surgical instrument rather than a weapon of warfare. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Note that, grow up, build up. 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Or as the King James says, and I like this, rightly dividing the word of truth. So verse 11 again, Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. By the way, the sword has a sheath. The sword of the word has a sheath. It's the heart. Psalm 119 verse 11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. You put the word into the heart and then what comes out of the mouth is compassionate, direct truth. The word in the heart not the word flailing out here. Note, he doesn't say your word I have treasured in my soul. I figured it out. I've learned the language. I've got the answers. I can surprise you with, with pithy ideas that I have developed in my intellectual man. He doesn't say that. He says your word I've treasured in my heart. In my heart. The difference is the soul moves with logistics and schemes and conspiracies, whereas the heart moves with grace and truth and love. Put the sword into the sheath. And then Jesus says, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? And you know the cup that he's referring to is the cup 
of the wrath of God, the same cup he had just prayed about moments before. My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will, the cup, the cup of wrath. Psalm 75, verse eight, a cup is in the hand of the Lord and the wine foams. It is well mixed. He pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. And you know this, Jesus became all the wicked of the earth on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin at the cross and drank the cup of the wrath of God down to the dregs. They're on the cross of Calvary. Number four, there is authority in obedience. Now let you process that one. There is authority in obedience. The world doesn't view it that way. The world views authority as me out there doing my thing, me leading out, me calling the shots. Do you realize that Jesus, while he was calling the shots in the garden, was calling the shots from perfect obedience to his father? I only do what I see the father doing. I only speak what the Father is telling me to speak. I only do that which is his will. Jesus, though the authority in this scene, in the, in the natural realm, in the physical, the Father was the authority as far as Jesus was concerned. And there is authority in obedience. This is huge for us as followers of Jesus. It is not about us overthrowing the world. It is about us being obedient to our Lord. And there's authority there. There's a power there the world cannot comprehend. And so the Roman cohort, verse 12, and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. If you skip down and look at verse 24, so Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now listen to me here. Who was to blame for the crucifixion of Jesus? The world, Christianity, the church has debated this for 2,000 years. Who was to blame? There was a long season in the church where the Jews were to blame, the Christ killers, and why anti-Semitism had such an ugly head, still does, by the way, in some areas of the church. We still have some full entire denominations who are lining up with the boycott, divest movement, BDS, boycott, divest, and sanction movement against Israel, against the Jews, because they had their chance. And they blew it and God is through with the Jew. The Jews killed Jesus, they said. Well, <laughs> the Romans drove the nails. The Romans lifted up the cross. The Jews couldn't have done anything without the acquiescence, at least, of Pilate and the Romans. Jew, Gentile? Who's to blame for the crucifixion of Jesus? Listen, it wasn't Romans and it wasn't Jews. Oh, I mean, it was, and it was our sin. But more than any of that, in the authority of obedience, Jesus is to blame for the crucifixion of Jesus. Listen to me. He was bound by obedience to the Father. He would see this through. He was bound by love for a very lost and sick world. He was bound and determined to go to Calvary. We see this in his ministry as he always knew his timing. Remember John pointed that out. My time is not yet now. It is not yet my time. My time has not yet come. Now is the time, he says. Bound and determined, he had a singular purpose. Back in Luke 19, verse 28, 
A week earlier, he passed through Jericho, healed some blind people there, did some teaching there, taught the people. And then as he left Jericho, Luke tells us, Luke 19, 28, after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it's the only time in the Gospels Jesus did that. Did what? Went on ahead. He was always in the midst of the crowd. He was always walking in the midst of his disciples. He was never leading out until he left Jericho, and then he's out ahead. And you can almost imagine the disciples following after going, what's the rush? Why is Jesus, you know, maybe even Peter back there calling, Jesus, slow down, man. It's like I have to do when I walk with Cheryl. She's half my size, and she outwalks me everywhere we go. I don't understand. Her little legs just going like crazy. Me with my big long legs going. <laughs> so Jesus is out front. Jesus was bound and determined to go to the cross, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God in absolute authority. Jesus was bound by authority. Bound by authority. There's authority in the name. There's authority in the healing. There's authority, what was the third one? I don't even know. Authority in control <laughs> and authority in obedience. This is all the authority of Christ on display here in the garden as he's being arrested. Full authority. John makes it clear that Jesus is no passive actor. In fact, he's the active director of this entire scene. And it's not just in the garden. It continues from chapter 18 all the way through chapter 19. We've talked about the seven signs that are in John. We've talked about the seven I am statements. There are seven witnesses in John. In fact, there are several sevens in the Gospel of John, all declaring and, and denoting the I am, the godness of Jesus. But right here, there's a seven that you might miss unless you're looking for it. And that is seven points of authority. Seven points of authority. I'm not gonna read them. I'm just gonna throw them at you real quickly. I wanna leave this because there's something else I wanna talk about, but I wanna leave them with you and you can look back at this and think it through. And as we go through the rest of 18 and 19 over the next couple or three weeks, you'll see this. But in chapter 18, verses three through 11, what we just saw, we see commanding authority. Commanding authority. In, in Verse 12, going forward through verse 24, we see priestly authority. As Jesus stands before Annas, the, the, the previous high priest, his son Caiaphas now is high priest, but Annas is really one, the one they all look to for authority, and Jesus stands before him, and what happens in those few verses up to verse 24, you see the priestly authority, but it is not with Annas, it is with Jesus. And verse 31 and 32 of chapter 18, we see a prophetic authority where he's before Pilate. And, 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 well, I'm just gonna read this one to you. Pilate said to them, verse 31, take him yourselves, judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, we're not permitted to, judge, to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke signifying by what kind of death he was to die. There is prophetic authority. If, if the Jews had executed Jesus, it would have been by stoning. But the Messiah was not to die by stoning. He was to be pierced through for our transgressions. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Zechariah 13. He was to be pierced. 
And so if the Jews had had their way, they would have stoned him to death, but that had been taken from them, the right of capital punishment, back when Jesus was a boy. They lost that right. So they had to go through the Romans, and the Romans executed through, through crucifixion. Crucifixion. So it's an amazing moment there where we see the prophetic authority of Jesus. It happened exactly as he said it would based on Bible prophecy. In verses 33 and 34, it continues as, as he's talking with Pilate. And Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus turns right back to him and says, are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me? Who's doing the questioning here? It's governing authority that we see on Jesus governing authority. So we see commanding, priestly, prophetic, governing authority in chapter 19, verses 7 through 11. We see this remarkable heavenly authority. A heavenly authority with Jesus where, where Pilate says, don't you know I have the authority? And Jesus says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Heavenly authority is in play here, Pilate. Not man's authority, not political authority, not earthly authority, heavenly. That's number five, verse 26. We see Jesus on the cross and he says to John, behold your mother and to Mary, behold your son. And Jesus shows us firstborn authority as he has the right of a firstborn son to say, mom, you're with him. We'll talk about that more when we get there, but Jesus looking after his mother as he's dying, wow. Firstborn authority, that's number six. And then number seven in verse 30 of chapter 19, when Jesus cries out, it is finished, final authority. Final authority. Seven times in chapters 18 and 19, we see the authority of Jesus in his arrests, in his trials, in his crucifixion, and even in his death, Jesus had all authority. And John wants us to see that on display here. The soldiers and the Jewish leaders unknowingly functioned under the final authority of Jesus Christ, who by that authority, by that authority, remains bound to a promise. And that promise is to build his church. It's so remarkable, and we, we could have spent more time and gone on. We will in the scriptures. But I wanted to do that Bible study first to then talk about something. And you may know about this, you may not know about this. You may be aware of it, but it, it's, and it's not, the issue is not the issue, but I gotta talk about an issue real quickly here. There's a new popular axiom some of you are very aware of this. Others of you will hear this for the first time this morning. There's a word that's being used. It's a new buzzword in what I would call the cultural church. It is a word within. It has actually become a movement within the church today that goes back to what I was saying earlier that you've got outside stuff that can attack us and we just get stronger, but the inside stuff begins to tear down at the fabric of the church. Some of you may strongly disagree with me on this. That's okay. That's okay. We can talk about it. I'll explain why you're wrong, and we'll be good. <laughs> I say that with a grin, but my friends, this is insidious. And it's a word that people have been grabbing hold of and using, and it is not a biblical word, either the word itself or the usage of the word. It has never before 
ever been applied to faith in Christianity in 2,000 years. I've named it recently in, in a teaching, but I didn't really talk about it much. I wanna be more clear. It's called deconstructionism. Deconstructionism. You may even hear a Christian say, I'm deconstructing right now. Why haven't you been at church for the last six months? Well, I'm deconstructing. Or I'm involved in, in deconstructionism. For those of you who don't know what it is, let me explain. If you track on social media, it's all over the place. All over the place. As of today, there are 293,026 posts on Instagram using the hashtag deconstruction. Hashtag deconstruction. Another hashtag that goes along with that is hashtag exvangelical. This is the movement. And it is a movement. As I said, it's not a Bible word, but it's tough to define. And the reason it's tough to define is that it's used by some, like an individual who's talking really more about a personal faith crisis. And they'll say, I'm deconstructing. I'm really rethinking things. On the superficial level, it's used by those who are saying, I'm rethinking all the traditions of my upbringing. I'm rethinking, you know, maybe I was raised Calvinist or maybe I was raised Arminianist or maybe I was raised something else and I'm rethinking the traditions of my personal upbringing fellowship and I'm, and I'm comparing them and I'm thinking about them and so I'm, I'm kind of deconstructing that stuff. So that's pretty lightweight and, and that's what some would say I'm deconstructing but they would say that not understanding what deconstructionism really is. For others, beyond being a personal re-examination of traditions and belief, which by the way, that, that's more along the lines of restoration than it is deconstruction. The word deconstruction, it, it, again, it's not a Christian word. Well, it, it, they're trying to make it one now, some are. But it was a word coined for the first time in, 19, in the 1960s. If you happen to have an English literature degree, you may be familiar with deconstructionism. It was coined by French philosopher Jacques Derrida as a form of philosophical and literary analysis. And I remember this being in college. I remember a professor saying, I want you to read this story and write a paper, but don't write the paper based on what you think the author meant. Write a paper on what you got out of the story. Deconstruct it. Don't take it as, as, as a story of truth on the author's part. Don't take it literally. Take it figuratively and deconstruct it and come up with your own meaning for this story. Which, by the way, you can do with any literature because it's just written by human beings. Deconstruct away. You're not losing anything. According to a 2020 course study on a, a book by a professor named Ken Capralian, who's a professor of the College of Marin Emeritus program, he says it designated a range of radical theoretical enterprises in diverse areas of the humanities and social sciences, including philosophy, literature, law, psychoanalysis, architecture, anthropology, theology, feminism, gay and lesbian studies, political theory, historiography, and film theory. That was the application of this concept of deconstructionism. He continues to write, in polemical debates about intellectual trends of the late 20th century, deconstruction was sometimes used pejoratively, negatively, to, su to suggest nihilism and frivolous skepticism. If you're going, okay, Rick, wait, now I'm, are we in English class? Just stay with me a second here. In popular usage, the term deconstructionism has come to mean, listen, a critical dismantling of tradition and traditional modes of thought. 
To deconstruct is to dismantle. It is to take apart, it is to tear down. Red flag number one of deconstructionism. It is basically a theory of textual criticism or interpretation, listen, that denies that there is any single correct meaning or interpretation to a passage or text. It denies that this is a foundationally straightforward, means what it says, says what it means book, and it says a deconstructionist would take the Bible and say, it may not mean what we thought it meant. So let's tear it apart and see if we can come up with other meanings. And, and you know what it is? It's trading out true, sound, biblical interpretation that it is as it is, is trading it out for application. Application's okay. I made an application, many of them this morning, when I said that his word I have hidden in my heart, put the sword in the sheath, that's application. That's a way of looking at it and thinking, oh yeah, that's a cool picture here. I can apply that saying I need to take in the word and I will be better equipped to fight from a spiritual perspective than a, a mental emotional one. Well, that's application. His word I have treasured in my heart is very simply, I'm, I'm in the word of God. I'm taking it in. So you have interpretation, then you have application, but deconstructionism is going after interpretation and trying to tear apart the fabric of scripture itself. Deconstruction has little to do with objective truth and everything to do with tearing down whatever doctrine someone thinks or feels is morally wrong. I don't like that doctrine. I don't like what it says about sexual morality. I'm not comfortable with that. I think that we should be able to just live together and not be married. I think that's fine. That's my moral compass. And the Bible says otherwise, I don't accept that, even though this is objective truth. So it's trading objective truth for subjective feeling, for my wants versus his wants. Let me ask you again, keep this in mind, who's in authority? Who is in authority throughout John 18 as we studied the text this morning? Who is in, who's the real authority here? Recently, deconstructionism began to be used among Christian circles, especially, by the way, Christian celebrity, which for me is always a red flag, to intellectually redefine crises of faith. Now listen, if you're in a crisis of faith or a crisis of faith, you need compassion, you need love, you need understanding, and you need the sound word of God on which to stand and deal with your doubts or your struggles. I understand that, but deconstructionism is dangerous. It goes way beyond that. Here's another red flag for you. In a Gospel Coalition article, author, podcaster, Elisa Childers points this out. And by the way, Elisa Childers is very interesting. She used to sing in the 90s with Zoe Girl, if you ever heard of Zoe Girl. And she went through a, a faith crisis, what she called deconstructing until she realized what deconstructionism was. She's got a podcast out here now that is excellent. It's really good information. Everything that I've heard so far anyway. But she points this out in the Gospel Coalition article, deconstruction is not about getting your theology right. The word itself is built upon postmodernism and it carries the baggage of moral relativism. That is no absolutes, even in the Bible. Nothing's absolute. It's all relative to your needs, your situation, and what you think. See how dangerous this is? For some, it is a philosophical excuse just to quit church. I'm deconstructing. No, you're not. You're taking Sunday off. I mean, let's just be honest. 
Really, you're home pouring through the scriptures and praying night and day to, to see that you're right with Jesus? No, I, it, it's, it's an excuse for some, for some. But it has become, in and of itself, a full-blown movement that is devoted to tearing down the old for a new cultural religion. Some would say, how can you go that far and say that? Again, according to Alyssa Childers and Tim Barnett, in her podcast, and it's the Alyssa Childers podcast number 139, so if you wanna look that up, you can go listen to it, it's really good. Deconstruction, they talk about this, has certain tenets, along with priests, prophets, and pastors as the social media spearheads promoting this new idea. It's people like Rob Bell, people like Brian McLaren, and those, their names actually are a little old for the, what was the emerging church in the 90s, and they were questioning all kinds of biblical absolutes. Uh, it's people like Richard Rohr, who is a, a big proponent of pro, what they call progressive Christianity. Richard Rohr is a priest who's been out there for a while, undermining everything that is of biblical sound truth and really going for everything that's emotional and intellectual. These guys are out there and they're spearheading an idea that we need to deconstruct. We need to deconstruct away from evangelicalism, which, okay, I don't wanna go too far here, but evangelicalism itself is an unfortunate phrase that has become termed as it is, that when I was a kid growing up, there were not evangelical Christians. You were just a Christian. But then we kind of came into this time where we're saying, no, we have, to, we have to further explain who we are in Christianity. That's very sad to me that we have to say what kind of Christian we are, when being a Christian should just be about being a disciple of Jesus Christ, period. But we've got Catholics and evangelicals, and now we've got progressives and, and all this different stuff, and the progressives are trying to say we need to get rid of evangelicalism. And they're partially saying that because evangelicalism has been married to politics, and the two has caused a problem for the church in the way that, that the world sees the church. But all that aside, some have come out and they've said, well, Martin Luther deconstructed. We love to use celebrity names in the church, even historical celebrity names, to try and prove our cause. You know, until we find out that historical celebrity had some problems, then we go, okay, well, we don't want to use his name anymore. <laughs> Martin Luther deconstructed. You know what Luther's intent was when he nailed up the, the, the treatise on the Wittenberg door against the Catholic Church? It, it wasn't deconstruct. It was back to the Bible. That, that, was his first, that was his original idea. And Luther didn't even let go of a lot of Catholic stuff, which is the Lutheran church today still has a lot of Catholic-style liturgy to it. But Luther wasn't saying, we just need to tear it down. He was saying, we need to build on the truth of God's word. Derek Webb. Some of you know who Derek Webb is. He was one of the two main male lead singers for a group called Cademan's Call. And Derek Webb went through his own deconstruction and, and he's very much on the front edge of this whole deconstructionism thing as well. And he recently tweeted that Jesus was the first deconstructionist. And then he quotes Jesus in Matthew chapter five. He says, hey, Jesus was a deconstructionist. Jesus said, you've heard it was said, but I say to you, wow, what a misunderstanding of what Jesus was saying. When Jesus said, you heard it was said that you shall not murder, but I say to you, don't even be angry with someone. He's not, you still shall not murder. 
But now he's building on it. The foundation is solid. Murder is wrong. Murder is sin. But it is anger that drives it. Let's get to the heart. The foundation was unchanged. He did not tear down the commandments for a new idea. In fact, Jesus said, you've heard it say you should not commit adultery. This is Matthew 5, 28. I say to you, everyone that looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in, her, in his heart. That is taking the concept that adultery, it remains wrong, foundationally, fundamentally wrong, but we gotta get this into our hearts or we're not gonna even be able to keep the solid foundation. Jesus is building, not tearing down. It's not deconstruction. It's building on to what was already there, strengthening, not destabilizing. Matthew 5, 17, remember what Jesus said before that. Don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Why? Because it's solid. And Jesus didn't tear down a single word of God. He built on it. He explained it, and he took it right to our hearts. So I don't like the word deconstruction. And deconstructionism is a dangerous wolf in sheep's clothing inside the house of the church because it is causing Christians to say, maybe I need to deconstruct. And maybe, maybe you're in the place where you're saying, I was raised with some old traditions and as we go through the Bible, those are really being challenged. Good, that's fine, that's okay. That is not tearing down the word of God. Questioning what I came from in light of the foundation of Jesus and the apostles, that is building up. And it's letting stuff fall off that has no place in the truth of God's word. But I do not like deconstruction. You know what the Bible only says, tear down about man-made idols. Tear down the idols. You got idolatry in your life? You have traditions that are idolatry? Yeah, tear that down. But when it comes to the word of God, when it comes to faith, it is always build up, build up. This is why we started with the authority of Jesus and to consider and think about that he is Lord. We build on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. We build on his lordship and I'm gonna run you through. Here's another scripture run like we've been doing lately. Acts chapter 20, verse 32. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, Paul says, which is able to build you up. I'm going to pump you up. I mean, that reminds me of that. <laughs> it's able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Build up. Romans 14, verse 19. We pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. And he's talking about food sacrifice to idols. He says all things are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Don't tear down, build up. 1 Corinthians 3, verse nine, we're God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, Paul says, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, the final authority. Build on Jesus. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Remember edification, edifice, a strong tower. Build up the church. 
2 Corinthians 13, 10, for this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up, not for tearing down. Ephesians 2, 19, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Build up, do not tear down. Ephesians 4.11, he gave some as apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are also doing. Hebrews chapter three, verse four, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And finally, Jude 20, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, build up, do not deconstruct. Now you may never have heard that word before this morning, or you have, and as I said, maybe you're in a faith crisis, maybe you've started to apply, I'm deconstructing to yourself, make sure you know what you're doing, make sure you understand the definition. It's why I'm talking about it right now. It's not an abstract academic exercise, or I wouldn't cover it, if it was just something out there, my, my friends, it's about those who are in pain and loss and discouragement and doubt and fear being told by others, you need to tear down your faith. Tear it down. Start from scratch. And what's happening in this movement of hashtag deconstructionism, hashtag exvangelicalism, is people are quitting church and losing faith. Denying Christ in the process. Don't go there. We are to build up. We need in the church builders, equippers, strengtheners, those who would take faith and build on it and encourage it. We need to spend less time listening to and debating empty philosophies and deceptions. We need to pay less attention to self-styled pastoral gurus speaking from personal experience rather than from the word of God. Go to the word of God. Let that be your standard. And if I'm ever preaching the word of God to you and I take it in a wrong direction, it's your responsibility to come build me up. Don't tear me down. But build me up on the word of truth. We need to listen to Jesus. Amen? Trust Jesus. Take Jesus at his word, knowing that whatever Jesus has promised, he will deliver. Why? Because he's the final authority on all things. He's the final authority. Build on the strong foundational authority of Jesus Christ, who said, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower. So who has final authority in your life? That's the question I'll leave you with. Who's in charge, you, Peter? You, sword swinger? You, fleeing disciple? Who has final authority in your life? 
Your answer to that question will determine your eternal life. Give authority to Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Father, we pause this morning very simply, actually, Lord, for all of that, very simply recognizing you are Lord. You have final authority. Your word is truth. And we don't use your name, Lord Jesus, to bolster our movement. We come to you and we say, align us with who you are. We declare you Lord. For you are Lord and Savior of all. In Jesus' name, amen.